As Paul has said, uh, the reading comes from Romans 8, which is on page 1134. And we're going to start re uh, reading at verse 22. So, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is uh, sorry, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. But hopes for what they who hopes for what they already have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Wonderful. Now, John is going to come and... Good. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. My wife and I belong to a home group which meets in our house on a Tuesday morning, and uh, there are 11 of us belong to it. And at 76, rising 77, I'm the baby of the group. If you add all the ages of us together, it comes up to 916 years. The average age is 83. So you'll understand where I'm coming from when I say that this text speaks to us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Indeed, I prefer the King James translation, which says the Spirit helpeth our infirmities because the Greek word can be applied specifically to the physical frailty of old age. At one point, about two years ago, six of our group were all waiting for an operation at the same time. Yes, indeed, we're facing the irreversible decline of our powers, a decline which comes to us all in the end. So indeed, this text does mean a lot to us. And if you look carefully at the context here in Romans chapter 8, you'll find the weakness referred to is primarily not a moral weakness, but a physical weakness. Because Paul has just said in verse 21, the whole of creation is in bondage to decay. Everything around us, like ourselves, is subject to this great physical law. Nothing is permanent. We've just had a wonderful spring with so much blossom and color bursting around us. Now the cold winds have blown, the blossom has gone, 
Each flower has its day, or week or two, and the petals fall. Later the fruit will ripen, and then rot if it's not used. The trees which bear the fruit will eventually die. The grass withers, and we ourselves, as the prayer book puts it, flee as it were a shadow, and never continue in one stay. Of course, others come after us, just as new plants come from the seeds of the old to replace them. Creation has the power to renew itself. And it's fashionable today among people who have no Christian faith to try to find a meaning when those they love pass away by seeing them as it were living on in their children, their progeny, their offspring. Otherwise, life seems all too pointless. Well, that may be a comfort to some, but actually if you look at the whole picture, the whole universal system is temporary. Planet Earth only contains life because of the sun, which also has a finite life. The fragile existence which we know and has continued here for a few millennia is but a flickering interval in the silent revolutions of dead worlds, gyrating with a motion which itself is bound to come to an end one day. So how do we relate this stark fact to our faith in what the Bible reveals as a God who is a loving creator who had a purpose in mind when, as we read in Genesis, the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters? It was his will to create something that was very good, to enjoy a permanent joyful relationship with himself. How does that square with this bondage to decay? Which isn't just something discovered by modern science, but was painfully evident to, to Paul writing about the work of the Spirit in this eighth chapter of the letter to the Romans. Let's look at it a bit more closely and see what this passage has to say. And uh, if you want to follow in a Bible within reach, then once again it's on page 1134 and 35. And if we may look back to verse 20, just before where our reading began, we're told there that the creation was subjected to frustration, or the word could mean futility pointlessness. And that's precisely the problem. What's the point of a world in which nothing lasts? Still more puzzling, this verse says that it's God himself who subjected it, has caused this to happen. The original purpose of, frust uh, of creation has become frustrated, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. But then, Paul adds two more words, the will of the one who has subjected it in hope, in hope. What hope? Well, it says in verse 21, the hope that the creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Well, what grounds does Paul have for speaking of such a hope. 
To find out more about that, have a look back to verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who has raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. This is our hope. This is our comfort. More, this is our confidence when we feel the strength ebbing away from our mortal bodies. If we know that God has raised Jesus to new life, if his spirit lives in us, then his gift of eternal life is ours. We shall never be destroyed. We have been liberated from the bondage to decay. And amazingly, this will be true of the whole creation as the spirit who moved over the surface of the waters renews the life of the old order to bring it into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so the question is, are we God's children? The answer is within you. Paul says there in verse 16 that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Do you have that testimony? There is, of course, a sense in which every human being is a child of God because God is the source of all life and has made us in his own image. But we know that image has become defaced through sin. And we know here that Paul means something more than just being a human being. Otherwise, he would not have to say in verse 11, if the Spirit is living within you. Only you can say whether the Holy Spirit is within you. How do I know, you ask? Well, this whole chapter gives us the necessary clues. The first four verses of the chapter show that our freedom from sin and death depend on Christ's sacrifice for us. It says in verse 3 that God sent his own son to be a sin offering. We need to ask God's forgiveness for our sins, as we have already done in this service, and we ask it on the basis of that sacrifice of Christ. And so it follows in verse 9 that if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Do you have faith in Christ? Are you trusting in him for your salvation? Do you find God's mercy in what he has done for you? So that's the first clue which, God, which Paul gives us in this chapter as to whether or not the Spirit dwells within us. The second clue follows it on in verses 5 to 9, in which Paul writes about a mind controlled by the Spirit and having our mind set on what the Spirit desires. The new life in the Spirit isn't something which is going to begin when this life is over. On the contrary, the Spirit is given to believers now. That's what we're rejoicing in when we have Pentecost. To begin a daily walk with God. Amid the fading glories of a passing world, and still struggling with the sinful desires of our old nature, we are called to claim the power of the Holy Spirit to live in daily fellowship with our Maker. If the life of the Spirit is within us, that will be our constant aim and purpose. 
So this is the second clue. Do I wake each morning committing my life to God, seeking to walk his way and to do his will this day? And then that brings us to the third clue in verses 26 and 27. We constantly need the Spirit's help in our weakness because daily fellowship with God must be based on something we call prayer, our converse with God, the way our fellowship with God is sustained. All too often, perhaps, we babble away to God rather than seeking first to know his will. The vital reality is that all the time, if the Spirit is within us, we have an intercessor praying within us with groans that words cannot express because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And that means the priority in prayer isn't thinking of what to say, but waiting upon the Spirit to seek to make our prayers a channel through which God's will may be done. Of course, we do continue to use words when we pray, not to tell God anything he doesn't know already, but to articulate to ourselves what is on our hearts, that we may share it with God. Mostly, though, I think our prayer life is helped by the Spirit if we often make time to be silent before God and wait for his spirit to work within us. So there it is, these three clues. A lively faith in Christ as Savior, a daily walk in fellowship with God, not serving our sinful desires, and an openness to what the Spirit wants to pray in us and through us. These are the signs which Paul writes about in this chapter to show that we have the Holy Spirit's testimony that indeed we are the children of God. So the flesh grows weaker as the years passed. And physical weakness, of course, is not just something old people experience. There are many younger people who have to experience physical weakness throughout their lives. But none of these things I've been talking about None of these three clues about the spirit dwelling within us can ever be diminished by increasing age or infirmity. Faith in Christ, walking in daily fellowship with God, waiting on God in prayer, these things may burn by God's grace ever brighter as the work of the Holy Spirit prepares us for the glory to come when we pass into the eternal presence of God with angels and archangels and all the saints who've gone before us. Yes, the way there is often hard, not least in old age. But Paul ends this chapter with those glorious words which are often used when we mark the end of a believer's earthly life. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To know that eternal love gives purpose and reality to our whole being. Life is not pointless. 
There is no ultimate futility because God is with us, his spirit is within us, and he has put a song in our hearts which will never cease. Amen.